This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. How is my favorite sex researcher doing right now? Aside from the fact that she hasn't slept much. Oh, uh, too much of the research or the first part of it? <laughs> infatuation. <laughs> infatuation. It's called infatuation. Oh, hello. Yeah. Yeah, that was a Rod Stewart song, I think. Infatuation. No. Really? Oh, I don't okay. know. Sorry, not, dating not, myself? Not my thing. Uh, welcome to the I, I like of... <laughs> electronic music. Yeah, I know. Welcome to the Science of Sex. <laughs> uh, we are back for another action-packed episode. What do we got today there, Dr. Jana? Oh, we're going to talk to Dr. Sam Perry about his fascinating work on whether watching porn reduces marital quality and increases divorce rates. Oh boy. Uh-huh. This is definitely a must listen. Yes, is porn bad for your relationship? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> the science of sex. Foreplay. Hmm, is there any sexual harassment in the news? <laughs> I can't imagine there would oh, be. Oh boy. This one kind of hurts me a little bit, but TV sports host Leanne Tweeden has accused Senator Al Franken of groping her without consent in 2006. Yeah, man. Franken and Tweedin were on a USO tour when he touched her breast while she was sleeping. She came out and said, listen, she's embarrassed, belittled, humiliated. How dare anyone grab my breast like this and think it's funny? Al Franken, on his behalf, he apologized. He said he didn't remember the skit and that the picture was intended to be funny, but it was clearly not. But wait, there's more. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the actress Natasha Henstridge. She was in that uh, sci-fi movie from the 90s, Species. She had double trouble. She has horrible experiences with Harvey Weinstein and Brett Ratner, the producer. No. Yes. So Brett Ratner forced her into a sex act, and then Harvey Weinstein almost locked her up in a room and tried to do his usual Harvey Weinstein thing mm-hmm. where, with massages and showers right. like that. So wow. that poor woman is now going through this now. Yeah, uh, and that's actually not uncommon yeah. for, for people to have multiple cases of sexual victimization. And in fact, people who've been victimized once are much more likely to be victimized again than people who've never been victimized in the first place. Interesting. Yes, yeah, so there's a fair amount of research finding that sexual huh. re-victimization rates are much higher than in, wow. uh, among those who've had it once already. As if it didn't suck alone just to have it yeah, once, to exactly. have it multiple times. That's mm-hmm. And a twist on this whole thing. Do you know the name Terry Crews? Does that sound familiar to you? No. He's on the not show. Not Ted Cruz. Not Ted Cruz, no. Damn it. Ter- Damn it. Can, not- can someone accuse Ted Cruz, no. please? I don't think Terry Cruz even knows what to do sexually, to be honest with you. No. But Terry Cruz, he's an actor. He's on the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the Andy Samberg comedy. But he's a, really a giant man. You would think he would be the harasser. No, no. Uh-huh. In this story, he was harassed by an agent. So this is a really crazy story. So this kind of broke when the Harvey Weinstein thing happened. He, he decided to come out with it. But he started doing interviews. So basically, he was assaulted by a guy named Adam Vennett. He's named the guy. This Adam Vennett guy is the head of motion pictures at William Morris Endeavor. That okay. is one of the biggest agencies on the planet. Oh. So what happened was Bennett and Cruz are at this party, wall-to-wall people. Bennett from across the room sticks out his tongue to Terry Cruz in a suggestive way. And Terry's like, this guy is either joking around with me, sure. fooling around. He comes over. Terry Cruz goes to shake his hand because, you know, mm-hmm. he sees this guy. He probably knows him by reputation. Going to sh- shake his hand. Instead, this Bennett guy takes his hand and squeezes Terry Cruz's genitals <laughs> in the middle of a crowded party. Weird. 
I don't even know. I don't understand how these people even do. Like, this guy is doing it in public, groping wow. people. What is wrong with people? What is going on? Yeah, a lot is wrong with people. <laughs> now, in this case, it's a guy with a guy outside of the Kevin Spacey thing. It's mostly been men and women. So mm-hmm. how rare or common is something like this it's happening? It's certainly rarer, mm-hmm. right? Less common for men to be sexually assaulted or harassed. They also reported less. They also interpret a lot of different situations. They're less likely to interpret a lot of different situations as harassment or assault than than women are, for sure. But so all of those things play a role in why we see lower rates of harassment and victimization of all kinds among men. But when they do report harassment or assault, it is much more common that it comes from other men hmm. than from women. The men are the harassers and abusers of both men and women. So most of these cases that we're hearing about, usually in a private setting, Harvey Weinstein loves the bathroom, hotel rooms (laughs) for some reason, but this one happened in public, in a party, in front of dozens and dozens of people. How rare does this happen in front of others? Well, doing stuff in public, doing sexual things in public is not that uncommon in general. Like that is a great turn on for a lot of people. Exhibitionism and voyeurism are one of the most common kind of sexual interests, uh, especially that fall outside of that very typical kind of procreative realm. And they're also one of the more common paraphilic disorders, a typical interest that that crossed the line into being non-consensual and being done to non-suspecting victims, like the case of voyeurism, of people, you know, you watching people that have no idea they are being watched, or you kind of showing yourself to people who don't want to be presented with, <laughs> with your naked body or whatever it is that you're showing to them. So these desires to do something in public where people might see you uh, is not uncommon. It is the fact that you're doing it to people who don't necessarily want that. So this could be part of that. So for some yeah. people, the both the non-consensual nature. The fact that, you know, this person doesn't really know that you're doing it to them or it doesn't really want to, that could be a turn on. And also the fact that other people might see it. Or it could be some sort of a power play where you are trying to establish some sort of dominance hierarchy and especially because you're doing it in public. But there is a undoubtedly something hot and sexy about the clandestine nature of doing something in public where you might be seen. So we've talked about this a lot, but that desire in and of itself should not be pathologized. It becomes problematic when it's being done to people who... Without consent. Yeah, don't want that done to them. And he's lucky, this Venet guy, because Terry Crews could remove his head from his neck. I mean, that that to me is bull. Because usually you see it's like a bigger person with a smaller person. This is a smaller guy to a, a large man. So this, mm. I, mean, I, I almost kind of wish that he went ahead and removed the guy's head yeah, from his shoulders. Yeah, but I think part of the, the strategy for some of these assaults, and maybe especially in this case, to do it in public is because you think the other person is less likely to react. Yeah. Because... You don't want to make a scene. You're kind of embarrassed of the fact that this even happened in the first place. You're just so shocked in that moment. You have that instead of fight or flight, you actually have that freeze response. Like, what the heck is going on? And you don't, by the time you had time to process and decide what you can or should or shouldn't do... It's too late. The person has moved on. So I think that may may even be part of the strategy. All right. Can we move on to some better news? Is that okay? Can we we take a break from men behaving badly? (laughs) So Germany's highest court has ruled that the nation's government must introduce a third gender for the categorization of people who do not identify as either male or female 
or born with ambiguous sexual anatomy. So this is kind of cool. The decision by the federal constitutional court means that the legislature must add the new status to all civil documents or dispense with gender identification altogether. An advocacy group called The Third Option applaud the ruling as the first step on improving the situation of inter- and transgender people. Yes, all good. I mean, we've, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is good news. This Thankfully. is good news. Yes. Uh, this is something that we're now seeing, I think, happen more and more on both a country level, as mm. in some of these European countries, and also in some of the states in the U.S. So we talked about that in California. And before that, I think Oregon did that by uh, through the legal system. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we're seeing this happen more and more. Could you see in our lifetime in a world where those boxes don't even exist, like male, female, or even like, you know, Caucasian, black, you know, how they have all these boxes? Boxes and all these things. Is it possible that maybe in our lifetime we they'll just do away with that? That's a great question. I was actually asked recently at some event. Somebody came up to me and said, "What do you think about a post-gender world?" And I just did a YouTube video on that oh, that cool. people can watch if they want to for for a fuller explanation of this. I personally don't think that we're going to get to that point because even though there are some people, a minority of people who don't fall neatly into these categories, sex and the gender that often goes with it that is most of the time congruent, these are categories that have biological meaning mm. and have been determined not just by our social constructions but also by biology and that biology is not going away unless or until we completely eliminate all sorts of physical and reproductive and anatomical and physiological differences and challenges that are being placed upon men and women or or people with genitals and people yeah. with vaginas. So even though I think we fully should acknowledge and integrate and provide equal rights and all that for people who for, for the minority of people who fall outside of that binary, I think that gender and, and gender identity were are and are going to remain a an important characteristic of the human species. And frankly, one that I think makes life interesting as well as it makes yeah. it challenging. But I think it's more fun to try and overcome those challenges and get to the point where we equally value all genders as opposed to erase gender in some way. Cool. Well, no matter what gender you identify as, everyone wants to get freaky every once in a while. And maybe you've always wanted to find some adult toys in your Christmas stocking. So this year, Pornhub has you covered, Dr. Jana. The adult website is rolling out a new line of sex toys in conjunction with Ann Summers that's aimed specifically at couples. The line contains just about anything you can imagine. So I was just perusing Pornhub's uh, toy line, and it's uh, it runs the gamut. So you could click on either anal toys, cock rings, or something I didn't even know was a category, but strokers. Yeah, strokers. Yeah, yeah that, like that's a, a thing. That's, that's a, a thing. thing. People are going to think that Pornhub is like a sponsor of the show, yeah. but no, it's not. No, no. <laughs> I'm just, I, just, I just saw this. It was pretty funny that because Pornhub obviously was just known for their videos and such. And so now, they were not making enough money showing other people's porn yeah. and not paying those other people to mm. have their, show, their porn shown for free on their site. Now they're extending into making toys. Yeah. And it's just in time for the holidays. <laughs> of course, of course it's in time for the Have holidays. Have you ever given a sex toy as a holiday gift? I'm not much of a holiday gifter. Oh, okay. Period. In general. But like- I have given sex toys uh, as gifts a lot. All right, well, speaking of porn, that segues perfectly into our guest. So it's time for us to get down and dirty, right? Down and dirty. I mean, I don't. I don't know. That doesn't oh, sound good. Yeah, you're right. Uh, let's uh, just move let's on. Let's talk about, <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about porn. Right. I don't know. But we're, yeah, this got really awkward all of a sudden. Yes. Go this. The science of sex goes deeper.
pornography and its effects on individuals, couples, and society more broadly is an incredibly heated subject. Two major studies published this year, both using a nationally representative sample of U.S. adults and both following the same participants over time, bring some bad news for married porn users. One of the studies, published in Archives of Sexual Behavior, found that married people who watched porn more often in 2006 reported significantly lower levels of marital quality six years later in 2012. And this was after controlling for initial levels of marital quality and other relevant factors. The second study, published in the Journal of Sex Research, found that the probability of divorce roughly doubled for married Americans who started watching porn in the two-year period between the two survey waves, while discontinuing porn use between these survey waves was associated with a lower probability of divorce, though only for women. So not only was porn use linked to lower marital satisfaction, but also to actual divorce. Our guest this week to discuss these studies is Dr. Samuel L. Perry, the lead author on these two research papers. Dr. Perry is an assistant professor of sociology and religious studies at the University of Oklahoma and one of the leading researchers in the field of pornography and its effects on people's relationships. He received his PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago, where he was a fellow at the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality. Dr. Perry's research explores the intersection of religion, family, and sexuality in the United States. He's the author of nearly 50 peer-reviewed journal articles and an author of the book Growing God's Family, the Global Orphan Care Movement and the Limits of Evangelical Activism, which explores American evangelical activism surrounding adoption and foster care. And he is currently finishing a second book on how pornography shapes the lives of American evangelicals. Dr. Perry, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. This ought to be fun. Yes. Tell us first, how did you end up studying porn and its effect on people and relationships? So um, I, I got into this studying uh, pornography use uh, when I was, I was really studying relationship quality. I, I was interested in what made marriages work or what made the quality of marriages go down. And so I had this data set that had like uh, 12 or 13 measures of how marriage was working out, like how, how happy you were with your sex life and how happy you were with your decision making or those kinds of things. And um, I, I found this variable for pornography use and how often somebody used it. And I said, I wonder if in any way associated with how happy people are in their marriages. And I, I uh, tested it out, and, uh, and lo and behold, it's, it's actually really highly correlated with how, how, how happy people are in their marriages. Mm. And so I, I decided to explore this further, and it just led down this pathway to, for the past two or three years, publishing almost exclusively in this area of pornography use and, and its uh, effects on romantic relationships. So it was kind of haphazard. It wasn't because you were watching porn all the time? <laughs> no, no, it was not. And it wasn't because I had some kind of vendetta against pornography. It was, I was studying something completely different at the time. It must be very interesting when you're like at a holiday party and people are like, hey, uh, so Doc, what are you uh, studying these days? What are your research on? How, how do you handle that when people start to ask you those kind of questions in sort of like in a public setting? Oh, absolutely. So for me, I, I've become kind of immune to it. And, and so to the point where I like post things on Facebook that, you know, make just make my wife so embarrassed. And so... <laughs> I, w- I would say it's, it's worse for her. She's, she's yeah. had a good sense of humor about uh, being married to the porn guy for the last three years. But, you know, she, she gets to the point where she says, Sam, stop, stop posting stuff about masturbation on, on, your, on your Facebook posts. Oh, that's, oh, that's all I post. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you're in Oklahoma, of all places. Is it hard being a porn researcher there? Well, it definitely means I stand out. Um, yes. 
And, and honestly, it, it means I stand out among sociologists in general, because sociologists, I mean, I, porn use and, and its effect on relationships has really been a, a topic that psychologists and uh, right. clinical psychologists, behavioral psychologists, even neuroscientists have really jumped into exploring. And, and sociologists, historically, they've done a good job about talking about the content of pornography, like whether or not it's misogynistic or whether it, it, it you know, it has racist messages. But right. they, they really haven't explored a lot about, you know, what are, what are the effects of pornography is long-term on people's real relationships and those kinds of things. That's something that they've really left to cognitive scientists and not, not so, sociologists. Right, so you're doubly standing out. Right, right. <laughs> Porn is, is definitely a controversial topic that people who do research on or write about often fall into the pro and anti-porn activist camp. Given your findings that we're going to talk about more, people might think you're, you're in the anti-porn camp. Where, where do you stand on this issue? Do you have yeah. no, sure. an opinion? No. You know, that's a good question. Like, uh, And I, I think people do make a lot of assumptions, even when I say that I study porn. Like, being a man, I, I get the feeling that if, if I say that I study porn, they, they kind of assume that I must be really all about porn. Um, <laughs> or, or when they hear about my findings, they get the sense that I, I must be, you know, some kind of religiously motivated vendetta against porn is this kind of social cancer. And, I, and I'm, I'm neither of those, really. I, I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who I, I like to think that I'm kind of squarely in the middle of those camps, trying to help those two camps having a co- have a conversation with one another. Uh, because it, it, is, it is frustrating to feel like if you, if you publish something that seems to suggest that porn use may have some negative consequences on people's relationships, depending on how you use it, uh, you kind of get tagged as this person who's out to, to ban pornography. And I, I really right. have no desire to do that. I, I, if, if I think anything about it in, in terms of professionally, I, I want people to make informed decisions about the kind of media that they're consuming and, and under what circumstances. And I want couples to have conversations with one another about difficult topics. So I, I try not to uh, get pegged in either camp of, uh, of anti-porn or pro-porn. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's set the stage a little bit about what this issue entails. My sense is that porn use is something that has been increasing in our society. Is that is that true? What are the current estimates? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the most helpful study I've seen recently that was a study that basically asked respondents, when was the last time you looked at porn? And so based on that question, this study estimated that somewhere around 45% of men under 40 look at porn in a given week. And that number was about 15 to 20% of women look at porn in a given week. And I think that's a pretty good estimate of what, what's going on here. So it's, it's a pretty high percentage of men who look at it almost weekly, almost half. What did we know about this question before you published your couple of studies? What, what were some gaps left to fill that you jumped in with? So I, I, will, I will say it is, it is an uncontroversial statement to say that most studies, the vast majority of studies that look at, say, the association between how often someone looks at porn and, and whether they're happy in the relationship or they're satisfied, most studies find a negative association, meaning people who use porn more often tend to be, not always, but they tend to report lower relationship satisfaction. Now, the, the issue has always been which comes first. Uh, is, it, is it unhappy people in, in unhappy relationships who look at porn as a way to find release or some kind of coping? Or is it porn use that leads to unhappy relationships? And so the issue that needs to be solved is the causal order, which comes first. Mm-hmm. Is it the porn use or the relationship death satisfaction? It's very much chicken and the egg, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And in reality, most of this is probably cyclical. Like there's, there's both of that going on. But I think studies had yet to, before, before we really started to look at this longitudinally, like over time, 
studies had yet to disentangle, okay, which, which one comes first or which one matters more, uh, which, you know, in terms of relationship satisfaction or is it the porn use that happens first? So we know that basically correlational studies, if you just ask people at any one given point in time and you find this correlation between marital unhappiness and porn use, you can't tell which came first. There, there are two ways that we can get close to this experimental and longitudinal research. Were there any experimental studies on this topic? So going back to the 1980s, there have been a, a few studies that did experiments where they exposed college kids to pornographic images, and they did all of these controls, and they were, you know, um, they're well-run studies. And, and, and since then, they've been replicated, and it's been with mixed results. But there have been some studies that tried to see, okay, whether somebody looked at porn, did that affect how they looked at committed relationships, or did that make them less satisfied with their current partner? And so I, I think those, those studies, because they have necessarily been very limited to college kids who are like not in long-term committed romantic relationships, most right. of them like marriages, they've been limited in their effectiveness. And, and to my knowledge, none have been done on married couples, and that probably with good reason for ethical reasons. You can't <laughs> expose a bunch of couples to porn and see who gets divorced, right? Like that's just a really a mean trick. So the other way we get at this is, uh, I'm sure as Dr. Jana was going to say, is longitudinal data. Right. And both of your studies are not only nationally representative of the U.S. population, but they're also longitudinal. And I don't think we've talked about longitudinal research on the podcast yet. So can you briefly explain what it is and why it's so valuable in being able to establish some of these or come close to establishing some of these causal relationships. So longitudinal data is helpful in that it solves the problem of which comes first. So with the, the kind of data that I use, they were both panel studies, and meaning they interviewed people at different points in time over their lives. Uh, one of them asked, one of them interviewed couples uh, six years apart, and another one interviewed uh, couples two years apart at different, at successive waves. And so we were able to isolate, okay, somebody uses porn at time one, what does their relationship look like at time two? That kind of thing. Right. So you can establish which came first. Right. Okay. So these two studies, one six years apart, one two years apart, which one looked at what? And, and just tell us a little bit more about the methodology, how porn use was uh, defined and uh, what the outcome measures were. The one that was published, the first, the first one, that, one that was published in the Journal of Sex Research was using the general social survey panel data. And what we did was we, the, the measure of porn use is a very limited measure in that in that survey. I mean, it's basically a dichotomous, do you or don't you look at pornography? What we did was we isolated people who were married at time one, and we basically split up the sample by people who either started looking at pornography between waves or did not start looking at pornography between waves, and then we saw who was more likely to be divorced by wave two. And so that was, that was the first study. And then the second study uh, was the Portraits of American Life study panel data that asked uh, couple six years apart. And that was a different measure of porn use. So that was actually a continuous measure, meaning it was like it went all the way from like zero to several times a week kind of thing. So and it was so, like how often a frequency Yeah, how measure. often they were looking at porn, like mm -hmm. this range of porn use. And neither study really defined porn use really well. I mean, so admittedly, uh, these studies have limitations that if I had perfect data, I would go back and try to remedy. But we were just, I think, using the data that we had available that could answer our longitudinal question, that is, how is porn use affecting groups over time? And so, uh, admittedly, lots of limitations in terms of the porn use measure that I would rectify if I could. And what did you expect to find? And did you expect any gender differences? Based on what has previously been written, so lots of stuff has been written on how porn use affects, say, relationship quality, and it's usually different for men and women. So the, most of the literature finds that porn use seems to 
more negatively affect the relationships of men than women. And women, women who use porn, it either oftentimes doesn't affect them in their relationship quality, or it, in some cases, it actually positively affects them in their relationship quality. And so I'll talk about that in a second. But for the men, the assumption is that a lot of men are looking at pornography uh, more often than women, so they're consuming it habitually, but they're also more likely to do so in isolation. Uh, they're more likely to just kind of masturbate to it and, and by themselves and hide it and maybe not lie about it, but at least try to it, – it's something private that they do on their own. And it can in some ways be a, sort of a substitute for intimacy in the relationship. Mm. Um, and, so, and some theories suggest if you do that often enough, if men are masturbating to porn often enough and the images that they consume and the things that they're envisioning there, it, it can in some way – I don't want to use the word reprogram because I think that's just kind of a loaded term, but I, I just mean it, it, it informs their expectations about how sexual relationships work and how body image is supposed to go. And uh, they end up comparing their spouses negatively to the airbrushed, perfect uh, mm. women that they are envisioning having sex with in porn. And so the theory goes that that may lead men to have more negative responses in terms of their relationships than, than women do. Women, by contrast, are, are more likely to use porn within the context of a romantic relationship. Some women, and I don't mean to paint all women with the same brush at all, a, a lot of women do, in fact, look at pornography for the same reason men do, to get aroused by it visually, to masturbate to it, that kind of thing. But women are more likely, if they're in a relationship, they're more likely to, to do so as a part of lovemaking, because either one of them initiated, like, hey, this may help us out sexually, and so they, it actually can be something that contributes to relational intimacy rather than for a man, which is just often done privately to masturbate to. And because of this, you had sort of differing gender expectations? Right. What we expected, men would be more likely to get a divorce because of their own porn use, and we expected women's relationship to porn would not show much effect in terms of their likelihood of divorce. And same with marital satisfaction, the marital quality? So because the, the literature has, has been so consistent in terms of, hey, men's relationship quality tends to be affected worse by porn than women's, we expected that, it, well, if it affects relationship quality worse, then that probably leads to a, a higher likelihood of divorce. And so we figured men who use porn would be more likely to, to get a divorce later on compared to women who use porn. So we figured porn would affect their marriages more strongly. Yeah. And if I can summarize your findings separately for men and women, for men, you did find, as more or less you expected, that the more porn men watched the time one, the lower their marital quality was six years later. Yes. And also the divorce study was consistent with this, that among those who had not watched porn at time one, if they began watching porn by time two, they were twice as likely to be divorced by time two compared to those who were not watching it at time one and still were not watching it at time two. That's right. So both in terms of marital quality and in terms of divorce, people who watched porn either more often or at all were uh, more likely to have bad marital quality and, and have uh, have a higher likelihood of divorce, basically double the likelihood of divorce. Yeah, it was something like 5% versus 10% within that two-year span. Yeah, so, right. And, and so that's, that's not a large percentage, but again, that's just over two years, right? So that's... Um, that's a pretty pretty significant jump, right, to, to go yeah. from 5 to 10% in, in two years. Absolutely. Doctor, can you correlate porn with just any kind of activity a guy would normally do? Say, for example, you know, these, there's these guys who play video games on, and that leads to bad relationships. In a way, is that just an activity 
and that so, that guys are more likely to do than women, whereas that will sidetrack the relationship. It's just another thing that could possibly you know envelop their life as opposed to being involved with whatever their partner's doing. You know, that's a that's a great question, and I, I am personally unaware of whether or not any studies have been done showing like whether some guy who who is involved in gaming, yeah, uh, like big time gaming, is more likely to experience a breakup just because it's something that occupies their their time and distracts them from the relationship. Mm. Um, I am aware of one study, and this is a study that just came out within the last couple of years that showed guys who are gaming uh, more often or who are spending more time on the internet and looking at porn more often, uh, not necessarily both together, but they're less likely to get married in the first place. Um, mm. So it's kind of kind of serving as a substitute in some way, yeah. just preventing them from going out and meeting somebody or even bothering, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that that I mean, it very well could be the case, and so that definitely would be something worth exploring in the future. Now, for women, though, things were a bit more complicated. Right. So, in the marital quality study, you found that marital satisfaction declined with increasing porn use for women, just like with men, but only to a point, only up to a once a month or so. But then it started increasing with more porn use. Right. So that the women who at time one watched porn once a day or more, you know, that's a fair amount of porn yeah. uh, use, they actually had higher marital satisfaction six years later than those who never watched porn. Right, yeah. <laughs> That was a pretty amazing finding. So we and 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 I, I think even though we couldn't, um, the unfortunate thing again, just because of the limitations of the data, we really couldn't ask these women. Okay, like what were the circumstances under which you're watching porn? But my my thought is most likely that is the group of women who are probably watching porn with their partner, and it's just a regular thing, and they talk about it, and it's it's not something that's stigmatized or they feel guilty about, uh, but they just see it as a part of lovemaking. That that's my guess. And so yeah, it's out. But that was a, that was an amazing finding for men. It's just almost a linear effect in that they, as the more, more porn they watch, the, the worse off their relationship is later on. But for women, you just get this really different effect, right? It goes down a bit, but people who are watching it more, or women who are watching it more often seem to just have, uh, in that study, improved hmm. marital quality. Interesting. So women, if you're watching porn, make sure you watch a lot of it. <laughs> is that the take-home message? And you'll live happily ever after. Uh, well, yeah, again, I think it's probably with the partner. That's my guess, just at, just based on what previous studies suggest. But mm. I think that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, but I don't know that for sure. So it could just be, yeah, women who watch tons of porn may have better, better marriages. I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, the divorce study found that similar to men, women who were not initially watching porn but then started to watch porn in that two-year period – they also were more likely to get divorced, just like the men, than than the women who were not watching porn at time one or time two. So their rates were even higher. It was like 2.5 times higher, something like 16 percent of right. those who started watching porn versus only 6 percent of those who never watched porn. Yeah. You conversely found that those who were watching porn at time one and then stopped watching porn by time two, their rates of divorce decreased. Right. So right. how do you explain why you find these discrepancies between the marital quality study and the divorce study? You know, that's a good question. So, I, and, and unfortunately, because we couldn't ask in the general social survey study where we, we looked at divorce and we saw this big difference between men and women and women seemingly more affected in their rate of divorce by the porn use than men. The most unfortunate thing about that is we really couldn't uh, see how much porn they were viewing or the, or the context in which they were doing it. So it could have been the specific circumstances under which a lot of those women were, were watching porn that maybe contributed to divorce later on. 
we tried our best to isolate whatever things would have made those groups different, like the people who did use porn and didn't use porn. We, we tried our best to statistically isolate uh, what made those groups different. But in the end, uh, it could have been something particular about the women and their situation uh, as they were watching porn that just made this outcome different than what it was for previous studies. That one was a, a shocker, uh, and, and it really uh, was inconsistent with what previous studies have shown. So we, we're still having to explain that one. I was thinking that maybe it's because there are fewer women just in terms of numbers who are watching porn at that very high frequency right that and and the GSS only has yes no that right. that effect is driven more by the more women who are in that I've watched porn once or twice yes. kind of thing I know I would agree with that I think that the Portraits of American Life study would look at marital quality would suggest that women who are watching it at higher frequencies are probably a lot more comfortable with it and they're probably more comfortable looking at it with a partner. And so my guess would be the divorce study was driven by that kind of lower group that really doesn't like it and, and doesn't like their partner using it probably as well. Right. Now you mentioned how the two groups may differ on other things that might be driving this effect. And some listeners might worry that right these results that you're finding are due to the fact that people who start or stop watching porn or who are watching porn more than other people right. are different in important ways than the people who are not watching porn a lot or at all. Yes. What pre-existing differences and, and between these groups did you take into account? Right. So in the, in the marital quality study, what I controlled for was as many marital quality at time one measures I could. So like how happy they were in their marriage, how Initially. sexually satisfied they were in their marriage, how satisfied they were with the decision-making and the power structure in their marriage. And then, of course, all of these other controls, like how religious they were, how, uh, what region of the country they lived in, of course, whether they were men and women, all of these different things. And so statistically, I tried to account for everything that could possibly affect their likelihood of marital quality later on. The only difference being they used porn at time one. And so feel pretty comfortable saying we, uh, as close as possible, effectively isolated this effect of, of porn use. With the other study, we even went a step further. So with the general social survey study, what we did was we, we did a fancy statistical technique called entropy balancing, which is, which is basically what we did is we statistically almost made this into a controlled experiment. So what I mean by that is the, the great thing about experiments is that you randomly assign different groups to a treatment. Whether they're different at all, it shouldn't matter because you're randomly assigning to a treatment and so you can determine whether or not the treatment had any kind of effect. So what we essentially did is we statistically, we made these groups exactly the same except for the fact that one of them started porn between waves and the other one didn't. Through a bunch of different ways and, and checks, we were able to, to basically show that, look, these groups of uh, married people are statistically almost the same on every measure, except one uses porn and one doesn't. And then we were able to show that the one that used porn was more likely to get a divorce. So, I mean, that one, I think, is the strongest evidence that uh, there's some, something close to a treatment effect of, of porn use. How much do you think we can claim causality, given your data? What I want to suggest is that I think, in the end, a lot of this is cyclical, right? So I do think there is uh, some measure of, hey, I'm unhappy in my marriage, I'm dissatisfied with my sex life, so I'm going to go masturbate to porn. Uh, so I, I do think that goes on. More often than not, and among men these days especially, most men are coming into marriage with porn, right? Like, so it's, mm. it's not something that men discover. I mean, average man gets married when they're like in their late 20s now. I mean, that guy has been looking at porn for a long time, right? right? So yeah. like, if, if that's going on, I mean, it's, it's most likely this guy has been looking at porn for a, a good long time. He knows how 
to masturbate. He knows how to hide it. He knows what works for him. And, he know, you know, and so it, the fact that most men are bringing porn into their marriages in the first place, I think there's evidence to suggest the porn comes first. And then that can somehow lead to relational conflict when the uh, if a spouse who finds out about it doesn't like it, feels betrayed, feels jealous, feels uncomfortable about it. I think more often than not, I think we do have evidence enough to suggest that there's something of a strong contributing or even causal relationship between porn use and, say, negative relationship outcomes. But again, I would, I would strongly suggest that it's cyclical. It's, it, it is also people in struggling relationships are more likely to turn to porn, too. And I think it's just a cycle that kind of goes on. Do you think the generational thing has anything to do with it, too? Because of the fact that millennials and even the zennials too, they pretty much had all access to porn right away. So, right. I mean, they were like five years old and they've got a phone in their hand. They could flip through a Pornhub. Whereas like the Gen Xers, you know, they start in the magazine phase and then even uh, you know, if you want to go to baby boomers. So do you think the younger generations of millennials and zennial women will be more accepting of porn if you were to do this study like 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, one, of the, one of the findings we had in our study with the general social survey is that younger people who used porn were more likely to get divorced than older people. Really? One of the reasons we think that is is because younger people are probably using porn far more often. Oh. If we could make if we could suggest that like more porn is probably going to lead to more relationship troubles or disruption and that probably is the case for young people. But the other thing is probably that older people who are who are married are probably just more invested in their marriage too. Like they've got all this sunk costs in marriage to where like they're not going to go anywhere else because they've been married for 15 years. And so even if they are using porn, it's just not something that's going to break up the relationship versus Mm -hmm. if they just got married and this is something that just has come to the surface, maybe they're more likely to get a divorce. So to go along with what you're saying, I do think that as young people, that young men and women grow up and they're just more comfortable with porn being something that like people look at and everybody knows it. Hopefully, my hope is that people have constructive dialogue with their partners about their porn use. And if, and if somebody says, I'm not, I don't like it, I'd, I'd rather you not do it, then people learn how to, res- you know, a partner learns how to respect those boundaries and they kind of work on that together versus all the hiding and lying and isolation that um, I think takes place among couples where there's still this stigma attached to it. I, I don't necessarily think porn helps a relationship. I, 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 I you know, I, I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that a lot of relationships are just kind of booming. Thank God for porn, right? <laughs> like, thank God for porn in our, in our marriage. Yeah. But I do think the situation is mitigated if people talk about it and if people have actual constructive conversations and their understanding of each other's needs and desires in a way that makes porn unnecessary, (laughs) hopefully. But also I think as both men and women become more comfortable with the existence of porn, that it might not be perceived as this bad thing as much as it is today in many relationships because these days you have so many women in particular saying that is absolutely equivalent to cheating and that means my husband doesn't love me or care about me or all that. And so maybe if it becomes more prevalent and more accepted then you'll have less of that, which probably adds to the marital dissatisfaction and dissolution. Yeah, and that could be the case, right? Like you have fewer situations, and a lot, a lot of my research has been with religious couples, mm-hmm. right? Like, a, 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 like, and people who have a huge problem with pornography. My own research, my own data suggests that uh, evangelical women in particular are twice as likely 
as as non-evangelical women to divorce their husband because of his porn use. Wow, wow twice uh, as likely. Right, so they're twice as likely. So uh, I do think the more women really hate porn and they think it's immoral and they think it's betrayal is the word they use, I think the more likely they're, it's going to be a deal breaker for them. But mm-hmm. if people are kind of raised in a situation where, like, hey, it's just kind of expected that, like, people occasionally, however often, look at porn, I think there's probably going to be less stigma attached to it and less less conflict. You also found some interesting things in the divorce study that those who were less religious and those who reported greater initial marital happiness were actually more likely to end up divorced after right. watching porn. Can you talk about these findings a bit? Yeah, so the, the one with religion was a little bit surprising because my research has always shown, and again, I've, I've studied a lot of this with religious couples. My research has suggested that if you're using porn and you're married and you're religious, that it makes the, it makes the effect of porn use way worse. And this, is, and this is probably because of like guilt and hiding and isolation that goes with porn use among religious people. They just, they feel like crap. They hate themselves. There's, I mean, they're just guilty, but also because they have spouses more likely who are not going to put up with it, right? Mm. So they, it's, it's just going to be a huge conflict issue. But what we found in the study was that people who went to church more frequently and looked at porn were less likely to get a divorce. And so the way we explain this is religion may make you less happy in your marriage if you're using porn, like in terms of like guilt or conflict that it causes, but it probably has some kind of a protective effect in terms of like whether or not you're going to get a divorce. So like in other words, religious people are more likely to stay in an unhappy marriage. Because uh, they value the marriage more. Right. Right. So they're more, it doesn't mean they're more happy. It just means they're more likely to stay in a marriage that is frustrating and they're using porn and it's just not Mm -hmm. something that they're excited about. So that's how we explain the religion thing. The marital happiness thing, I, I tend to think that was a result of people who were at one time very happy in their relationship and porn maybe comes into the relationship at some point between wave one and two and it either gets discovered by a spouse and it just blindsides them and they end up getting a divorce, like and it gets interpreted as a betrayal or something like that. Or for some reason, some, some other reason we couldn't control for, uh, the marriage just suddenly became really unhappy and uh, porn use was involved or something like that, and then that led to the divorce. And so what, what it also could have been is that people who are already unhappy in their marriages, porn wasn't going to make that worse. In other, in other words, like people who weren't already very happy in their marriage, whether they looked at porn at t- between time one and time two, it wasn't going to change things up very much in terms of their likelihood of getting a divorce. And so it just seemed to affect happier marriages more. Based on all your findings and all the other findings we have on the link between porn and marital quality or divorce, what's the final word? I mean, it sounds like porn is kind of not the best for relationships. What would your take-home message be? My message to most people when I talk about this is that couples need to talk. People who are using porn need to be willing to open up that conversation with their spouse or partner about, hey, this is something that I enjoy. What do you think about this? And they need to respect one another's opinions and preferences on that kind of thing. I would be willing to say most of the conflict is not because like porn rewires your brain to like not like your spouse anymore, or it makes you some kind of sexual deviant in the sense that you're just never satisfied and you just like are a sex mom monster now. Like, I just don't, I don't think that's a fair thing to say. And that just doesn't happen. Like so many guys look at porn. It's not a plausible argument to say like that porn changes every man to be this kind of insatiable <laughs> sexual monster, right? Like, or not even a monster, but just somebody who just, their desires have been changed and they're not satisfied by anything other than masturbating to porn. That's just not true. But I think most of where the conflict comes from is that people are lying and they're hiding it. They're hiding it. One person has already communicated. I don't like this. And so that just, 
it, so porn becomes a retreat that gets isolated for the other spouse or partner. And so I think if people respect or one another's boundaries and people can approach one another with a little bit more understanding, I think there would be a lot less conflict over it. But on the whole, I think the evidence would suggest that on average, people who use porn have lower relationship quality. Look, relationships just don't go that good with porn on average. I know there are exceptions to that, but I just don't think it, I don't think it's defensible to say like, hey, porn has a, it's, it's completely neutral when it comes to relationships. I think for the most part, it's probably not a great thing, but I, I don't think it's like the, the poison that kills all relationships because I think there's just too many counterexamples of couples where they, they use it, talk about it, and it's not a big thing. And obviously for women, seems yeah, like right. more, Absolutely. the more the better. Keep watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else is fascinating to know about the link between religiosity and porn? You're now actually currently writing a book examining how porn shapes the lives of American evangelicals. Can you briefly summarize what we know about this? Like, are religious people more or less into porn? Does watching porn make you less religious over time? Is, is it worse for your relationship if you're more religious and so on? Give right, us a little right. preview of what we're going to mm-hmm. read in that book coming up. Yeah, sure. So my argument in the book is that what, whatever we know about porn and how it affects your mental health or your relationships or your sense of self, it's way worse for conservative Protestants. Like, and, so, uh, and what I mean by that is there's, there's so much cultural stigma that goes uh, on with conservative Protestants, both among each other and just internalized. Um, sexual purity for deeply religious and devout Christians uh, is such an important aspect of their own personal identity. But they're, they're all growing up in this world now, especially the younger ones, mm. where porn is so accessible. And most of them have, uh, you know, are, are using social media and they're using the Internet as much as anybody, right? Like they have, they have iPhones. And, sure. they have, you know, and so they have the same kind of temptations and exposure to these kinds of uh, explicit sexual kind of media opportunities. What it does for them, though, is it, is it if people who are not very religious are tempted to lie or hide their pornography use. I mean, people who are deeply religious, they hide it and they lie about it and they feel like garbage because they use it. And it affects not only their sense of self. I mean, like uh, uh, there's evidence to suggest that uh, religious people are more likely to feel depressed because of their porn use. I mean, more likely to actually have symptoms of clinical depression because it's something that they use habitually and regularly. And, and, And honestly, religious people don't use pornography as much as everybody else, but they're considerably more likely to feel like they're addicted to it. I've interviewed a bunch of men who, who are evangelical Christians and they look at porn. And I would say, you know, do you consider yourself addicted to pornography? And one would say, oh yeah, uh, totally addicted. I've been addicted for a long, long time. And then I would say, well, how long do you look, how often do you look at porn? And one guy said, well, probably five times in the last three years. <laughs> or or, or another man who's, who's married and, and, and broke down crying while we were having a conversation, an interview, about his experiences with porn. This guy's a married guy, and he said, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm hopelessly addicted, and I felt downright enslaved by pornography. Well, it turns out this guy watches porn about 15 minutes a week, right, and, and wow. masturbates in the bathroom, gets it over with, and then just kind of goes back to his life. But that enough for this guy, it just makes him feel like... He's an addict. Uh, an yeah. alcoholic, an, a- an addict, wow. a drug addict. So there's this huge narrative within the evangelical community about porn addiction, and it shapes their marriages, it shapes their sense of self, it shapes their relationships with their kids. They feel guilty about even relating to their kids because they feel like just a closeted monster. Yeah, that they're dirty. And, right. Um, 
So, and so what I've found in terms of relationships is, and, and I've published maybe uh, at least three or four studies on this phenomenon so far, whatever connection you can establish between, say, porn use and relationship quality, if somebody attends church more often, except for the divorce study, that was an right. exception, but if somebody attends church more often is, or is a conservative Protestant, most likely that relationship is way worse for, the, for, for that person. And it's because of the conflict, it's because of the negativity, of the guilt. And as I, as I shared earlier, uh, evangelical women, uh, if they find out their husband is using porn, more more than twice as likely to to say I divorced my husband because of his porn use than right. non-evangelical women. So it's it's a it's a deal breaker for them as well. It's a huge like line in the sand that you do not cross. So really, there's there's a this is a whole kind of fascinating field of kind of how religious uh, beliefs and morality really interact with this kind of wave of porn use that we're all exposed to. And I think it's a fascinating thing. And I hope the book will be fun reading for yeah. for a lot of groups. Doc, where does that come from? Because I went to Catholic school and I'm trying to remember the commandments. Where is it that you can't jerk off? Is that is that one of the commandments or something? What is this all about? I, I don't understand right. with the Christian right and their obsession with porn being bad and masturbation being bad. How did that all come about? All right, that's a uh, so uh, fascinating subject. So I actually have a whole chapter on this in the book. So for for conservative Protestants at least, it is all about porn use and masturbating is actually kind of a morally ambivalent thing. Like I could okay. I could I could point you to a bunch of different sources where because masturbating isn't in the Bible. Like yeah. there's, there's no other than this guy named Onan who's like in Genesis chapter 38, he kind of gets struck dead for like spilling his seed on the ground. That was historically like people would point to Onan as this example of like, oh, you're not supposed to masturbate. But most Christian conservative Protestants today don't think, they think masturbation is probably something that's like sexually risky and you should probably avoid, but not because it's inherently bad. What they think is inherently bad is looking at porn. And it goes back to Jesus's commandments about uh, looking at somebody lustfully. Um. Like there's this passage in Matthew where it says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, where it says, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so they connect porn use to that commandment to like, hey, you're, you're committing adultery with that woman, you're lusting. And so porn is definitely the evil, but masturbation is kind of this something that you do while you're looking at porn, but porn is the bad thing. But if you masturbate to conjuring up images in your head, that's okay? No, so and that, that, that's the other thing. So that would still be quali- that would still qualify for these groups as lust. Right. Uh, because you're you're thinking about something you're not supposed to, but but take for example and I and I've, I've actually heard this example a lot. Take for example a soldier who's overseas and he's married and his wife gives him some naked pictures of herself or he's just thinking oh. about his wife mm-hmm. sexually. I've had a lot of pastors, Christian pastors say, I don't think that guy would be sinning by masturbating, right? Because he's not lusting about a woman who's not his wife. He's thinking thoughts about her and he's okay. masturbating to that. And so to them, that's, you know, th- there are exceptions to most masturbation they would think probably is bad because you're lusting while you're doing it. But uh, for a lot of Christian men, if they're, if they're thinking thoughts of their wife, say, away on a business trip, or they okay. are, again, overseas, you know, theoretically, if you could think about baseball while you're masturbating, then... <laughs> that would be okay. <laughs> then that would be okay, because you're not thinking about a woman and you're not the way you're not supposed to. So what you're saying is people have to start making more homemade porn so they can watch themselves <laughs> and their mate. Is that is that pretty much the outcome of this whole study? You know, actually, I, I've actually heard a pa- I've read a pastor say as much that if, if if a husband is masturbating to pictures of his wife and that's something that they both agree on and communicated about, like he wouldn't call that a bad thing. He wouldn't call that sin. Maybe homemade porn is the is the solution. Yeah, I think you just solved a massive problem for evangelical Christians. <laughs> yeah, I need to talk to some folks, and that's the, that, that's the second study we're going to do. Together. Is this book over? Can you fit this in the book, or is the book already gone to print? Oh no, I'm still working. It out. Okay, you cool. A, you guys get a footnote with your name Good. on it right there. <laughs> Wedge that uh, in there. And in the meantime, people can read your first book on the growing evangelical adoption movement.
called Growing God's Family. Yes, that's right. Dr. Sam Perry, thanks so much for your time. This is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Thanks for any time. The Science of Sex. Afterglow. Dr. Jana, I like to follow you on social media to see what's going on in your life. That's great. That's great. I, I follow you too on social media. Yeah, well, you don't follow me on Twitter, but anyway, uh, that's another thing. I'm going to fix that. Okay, please do. Uh, I did see a picture of you and uh, Esther Perel, the world-famous author. She wrote that book, uh, Mating in Captivity. I know uh-huh. she's got a new book coming out or uh-huh. just came out. Just came out. You were at the party for that book, right? <laughs> yes, I was. So have you read that book yet? <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Oh, so you went to the party, enjoyed probably the free alcohol and hors d'oeuvres, but it did not read the book just yet, huh? Not yet. I ordered okay. it. It's on its way. Oh. I'm going to read it very soon. I'm actually looking, really looking forward to reading it. I thoroughly enjoyed Mating in Captivity. I think Esther Perel is an amazing writer, and she has a very kind of unique style in how she writes and how she approaches these very difficult, very controversial topics. So the first one was about human tendency to lose sexual desire for our long-term partners and why that happens and what we can do about it, how we can bring it back. And this next book is basically about infidelity. It's an issue that is so difficult and it's on one hand universally forbidden as a thing yet almost universally practiced so rates of infidelity are relatively high especially if you look at it in terms of lifelong so maybe people won't cheat on this current partner but if you take all of their long-term partners that they've had the the chances of having cheated at least on one partner are somewhere upwards of 60 or 70 percent wow or people uh, reporting of having been cheated on at least once is upwards of 60 or 70 percent over the course of their entire lives so it's a very very common experience yet we place so much weight and value on it and it's uh, such a tragic thing when it happens and so I think uh, with her experience as a couples therapist where she's seen a lot of obviously infidelity she has written this book about why it hurts so much and why do people do it and what does it really mean and should we change our expectations have we set ourselves up for failure because we have these extremely unrealistic and strict expectations for life lifelong monogamy and, and all that. So, yeah, she tackles some really, really serious questions. Now, she's getting a lot of press for the book, you mm-hmm. know. Just, As she should. She should. It's yeah, really well it done. It made it on the New York Times bestseller so list. Uh, after I saw that picture of you that I was invited to, I Googled Esther Perel. Because you didn't know who she was? I didn't know who she was, so I wouldn't have been invited. <laughs> so- <laughs> you know, as someone who's been in a relationship for 20 yeah, plus some, some years, like that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, the first book might be of use, you know, Mating Captivity might really? be, yeah. What are you trying to say? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your sex life is like, but 20 years is a long time. All right. Anyway, let's get to Esther <laughs> Perel. What is- oh, so you like to talk about my sex life? And not- yours is a lot more interesting than mine. <laughs> I think you can agree with that. Anyway, so Esther says, yeah, since the 90s, she says, the rate of married women who have cheated has increased by 40%. Mm-hmm. 40%. And and for men, no change. No change whatsoever. So basically, the guys are the same piggish or cheating selves as it was 20 years ago, but women have sort of said, hey, listen, if they could do it, I could do it, and now 40% more are doing it. What, what is the explanation behind all that? It's, it's not that 40% more are doing it. It's not 
Yeah, like from twenty percent to sixty percent. Right, right. There you go. Being the scientist yeah, yeah, again. Forty percent of whatever it was. Yes. So more women are doing it now. So that would be, let's say, if twenty percent were cheating back then, now it's what is it? Sixty percent. Forty plus twenty is sixty percent. No. Oh. That's the whole point. That's not how that math works. <laughs> all, right, all right. Regardless. No, no, no. This is important. Okay, good. <laughs> What, what, what is it Because now? people misunderstand it. P- people will think exactly what you just thought, that if it was 20% in, when was it? Uh, the 90s. In I'm the saying. 90s, that now it's 60%. That is absolutely not true. That's not how this math works. Okay. What that means is if it was 20% in the 90s, mm-hmm. now it is 28%. Uh, 40% of the 20%. Uh, Okay. Okay. Forty percent sounds better though. If you just say forty. Yeah, but that's on. it's not true. It's not true. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. But we that but, way we'll get to pretty much everybody cheating all the time very quickly if the math worked right. that way. All right. But so regardless of the math, there are more women cheating now than they were in the nineties. Yes. So okay. actually, one of the most consistent findings in sexual behavior throughout you know, all the studies that we've had and throughout different countries and different methodologies and all that has, has always been that men were much more likely to report having cheated on a partner than women were. And lately, that gap seems to be closing. Some Even some new studies find no gender difference among mm. among some of the younger generations of Americans in, in this case. And this is mostly due to the fact that women are more likely to cheat or more likely to report cheating. So what might be going on is a number of different gotcha. things. On one hand, women just might be feeling a little more comfortable reporting that they've done it. Yeah. Whereas before they felt less comfortable mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. It could also be, and I think that partly this is due to a real change in what's happening in our world. And that is women are getting more independent in terms of economic and financial power. And they don't depend anymore uh, as much on their husbands for, yeah. for that kind of support. They also because they're working and out and about more often, they get more opportunities to cheat. We do know that whether or not you end up cheating is to some extent associated with whether you have opportunity Mm -hmm. and travel, traveling for work and that kind of stuff provides some of those opportunities. Yeah, I think access has a lot more to do with it than anything else. I mean, obviously the income equality has a lot to do with in terms of like being comfortable on your own to do something like that. But the access has always been, like guys are so lazy. Like, guys, if they had to work so hard for an affair, they wouldn't do it. But if they have someone, a coworker, or someone they met at the gym, or someone they meet oh, in sure. a place where they hang out. So women are now have the same thing. It's not like <laughs> the old days where they would just stay home with the kids mm-hmm. and take them to school, then pick mm-hmm. them up, and then make dinner. Nowadays, women are, are doing more things, and they're going out, and they're meeting guys at the gym, or they're meeting guys at yoga. Mm-hmm. So next thing you know, hey, equal playing field now. <laughs> yeah, that I think that all... Is playing a role. And also, I think more and more, we used to have this understanding that sexual pleasure, sexual excitement, sexual satisfaction was more for the guy. As isn't, that, isn't that true? <laughs> no? Okay. Not quite, <laughs> okay. Joe. Not quite. <laughs> I might have to have a word with your partner. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> but as we are acknowledging female sexual pleasure as a right and uh, you know a thing that we should be striving for in its own right, mm-hmm. I think women are being more likely to kind of think about this. And if they're not getting what they need or want in their in their main relationships, mm-hmm. they're maybe more likely to go and seek that out elsewhere. We do know some reasons why people cheat, but now there's a new study, and I'm bringing a study to the table. I know you're the study girl oh, wow. that you bring. A, so the <laughs> Journal of Sex Research has data that reveals women are more likely to cheat between six and ten years of being in a relationship, and men are most likely to do so after eleven years. So if you're in a relationship with a woman, guys, if you're listening to this, and you've been dating 
for between six and ten years, there's a good chance that your mate is cheating on you right now as you listen to this podcast. No, actually, there's no good chance. There's no good chance? All right. I well, mean, I'm just going... there's more of a chance, right. I guess, if this is true, than if you've been dating for less than that. Yeah. But I wouldn't say it's good chance. What? Good chance would assume like 80% <laughs> or something. There you go with the math again, <laughs> Dr. Jana. Math is important, Joe. I know, I know. I wasn't how, good at it. How these numbers are presented is very important because when the media writes something, especially when they try to translate it from actual research articles, yeah. and they translate it in these ways that are completely inaccurate because they sound accurate to you, then right. people get a completely distorted view of what these numbers look like, right. what, what these odds of something happening looks like. I feel you're funneling your anger towards media at me because I'm the one presenting these kind of <laughs> no, bogus stats. No, it's not just you. It's not just you. The media does it all the time because they're not trained to understand these statistical terms and, and concepts. But I think we all should try and be a little more careful in both how we present it and how we read these things because it's not the same if 60% of women are cheating oh, versus 28% of women are cheating. We never let anything go, dude. <laughs> It's not the same <laughs> All right. uh, if there's a higher chance of a woman cheating between years six and 10. The same way it's not the same if a woman is more likely to cheat in the years six to 10 than okay. before or after Okay. compared to there's a good chance she's cheating on you right now as we speak. See, to me, that sounds exactly the same. No, that's completely different. <laughs> right, why because the think? chance, because the first one, the correct one, yeah. could be there is a twenty percent chance versus fifteen percent chance. Right, I got you. Right, All right. Whereas what you're saying is like. It could be eighty percent <laughs> chance that she's doing it right now. Uh, well, I got to ask you a question. Are you going to cheat on me? Are you going to do another podcast? Will you be back here with me next week? Well, I am I am not a wow. most monogamous person in the world. I understand that. So That's why I'm I, worried. I, but I will not cheat. I will let you know. <sighs> I'm consensually non-monogamous. All right. So I'm okay, well, I'm confused now. So so are, are you going to- Well, there are two types <laughs> of- Are you going to do a podcast with somebody else within next week? <laughs> That's all I want to know. I have no plans of doing that, Joe. All right. Cool. I might be in a, a guest on somebody else's podcast. Does okay. that count? Nah, it's not the same. No. no, no. All right, cool. Well, thank you. So we're monogamous, right? <laughs> For the time being, we're podcast monogamous, yes. All right, wow. This is cool. I have committed to you. Whoa. Oh, my God. Do I have to bring in my mother to meet you? Yeah, Thanksgiving. <laughs> no, no, no. Thanksgiving at your All parents' right. house. All right, we got to go. <laughs> See you next week. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 